0: So please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 74. Psalm 74, verse 1. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt, Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees, and all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Verse 18. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so in verse 1... You go back there in your text. In verse 1, the writer begins this psalm by asking a question. He says, Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Now, if you know anything about Israel's history, think back to that with me. How often was God angry with Israel? Was was this rare? Was this common? Okay, this was very, very common. Why was that? Well, because Israel was so often unfaithful to God, and he would respond with many merciful warnings to his people, but eventually judgment, as he promised in their covenant relationship. Now, Israel's sin and God's judgment were very common throughout their history, but the extent of the judgment that we see in Psalm 74 is not common. This time, the attackers against Israel made it all the way to the temple, and that happened only a, a handful of times in Israel's history. And so there is some debate about the historical events related to this psalm, But considering all the details, it seemed most, or seems most likely, that this is the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon in 586 BC, when Nebuchadnezzar's armies burned the house of the Lord. Now look again at what the writer asked. Lord in verse 1. He says, why do you cast us off forever? And look what he writes in verse 9. He says, we do not see our signs, there is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. Verse 10, how long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Okay, so the writer's basic question is specifically, how long? Is God's current judgment going to continue upon God's people? Will God's wrath ever be satisfied? And according to verse 9, there is no prophet of the Lord that can answer this question for them. Now we know that Jeremiah had prophesied that God's judgment under Babylon would last for 70 years. But this writer at least seems not to have that information. And Jeremiah seems already to have been taken out of the land. But this writer has great faith in the Lord because he is concerned about how long Israel's judgment has lasted. He, he knows the Lord. He knows the promises of God. We'll see that later. But it seems like this judgment is just never going to end. The darkness of these heavy circumstances just feel like they will never lift The writer cannot understand why God would allow this situation that really seems not to glorify him. Why would he allow that to go on for so long? But let's look at how bad it is in Israel. Is is it really that bad? Look at verse 3. The writer kind of poetically tells God to go walk around the city. Verse 3, he says, Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. And all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. As you can imagine this scene, Israel's attackers have just torn through the temple. They're setting fires. They're destroying all these uh, amazing wooden carvings. They're, they're taking down Israel's signs and banners, and it seems even putting up their own. They've taken over the temple. Verse 11, the writer says to God, why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Okay. The writer feels like God is has his hands in his pockets, just standing there watching all this. He knows that God could do something. He wants God to act, but he hasn't. If the writer was God, he would have acted by this time. And he doesn't understand why God hasn't acted yet to save Israel out of the situation. And yet still, despite all of this, the writer is a man of faith. His estimation of God has not crumbled or fallen with the temple. But the question is, what does he believe about God that would give him such confidence in the midst of this devastation? In verse 12, where he proclaims the content of his faith, we start to see an answer to this question. We get a picture of the character of the God that he trusts. Despite his questions, the writer has not given up what he believes about God. He has both faith and he has questions. And so what does this writer believe about God? Look at verse 12. He says, yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. And so fundamentally, this writer believes that God is king. He's still king, and he has been from of old or from ages past. We're not used to this. Number one, we don't have kings in America. But even the kings and queens that we know, they always come and go. In 2022, Queen Elizabeth died and King Charles ascended to the throne of the United Kingdom. Now, Queen Elizabeth had reigned for a long time. In fact, she was the longest reigning monarch in British history. But no one would say that she was queen from of old. I mean, she reigned for 70 years. But it was only 70 years. I mean, on the broad scheme of the history of the world, her reign is a blip. It is Nothing. However, God's reign has seen the rise and the fall of every human kingdom. But not only has his reign extended across all that time, he has also been involved across that time in human affairs. Verse 12, he has been working salvation in the midst of the earth. He is not just a God who reigns up and out there. He is involved in what is going on in his world. Now, the imagery of verses 13, 14, and 15 is challenging. challenging. But it seems to make best sense to see this as kind of a a poetic way of describing or proclaiming God's authority and power over creation, specifically in how he used the creation to save Israel from Egypt, take them through the wilderness and into the promised land. All right, look at verse 13. He says, you, God, divided the sea by your might." You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Now, I know that Egypt is not mentioned by name in those verses. But we see God dividing the sea, and there are all these, these sea monsters involved, and Egypt is elsewhere in our Bibles, referred to or described as the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams. Ezekiel 29. And then after Israel crossed the Red Sea, Egypt's armies, right, they tried to follow after them. And so what did God do? He, he brought the water of the Red Sea down upon them, breaking and crushing their heads. But even after this, God continued to show his power over creation. Verse 15. You, God, split open springs and brooks, do you remember how God supplied water to Israel when they were going through the wilderness? On multiple occasions, God would split open a rock and cause water to flow out for his people. And then the rest of verse 15, you, God, dried up ever-flowing streams. Do you remember how God brought Israel across the Jordan River? He cut off the waters of the river so that Israel could cross into the promised land. He dried up ever-flowing streams for his people. So God is king from old. And his kingship, his authority is such that the, the waters of the earth, they obey his command. And he has used this authority and power on many occasions in the service of his people in unexpected and powerful ways. This is the hope inspiring character of our writer, that, of, of the God that this writer worships. And his God is the same as ours. And if our God can, can do that, if our God can, can bend nature to do his will, then, then what can't he do? If it is his will, then what healing can't he bring? What strength can't he provide? What, what evil can't he defeat? What threat can't he protect you from? And what need can't he supply? There is nothing. Nothing that God wants to do is impossible for God to do. But the writer is not done with his descriptions of God. God's kingship, his authority extends beyond just the waters of the earth. Look at verse 16. He says, yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. God's kingship, his authority is evident, not just in how he uses creation in such powerful ways, but also in the consistency of creation. The order of creation is because of him. He's the one that decided there would be a a nighttime and a daytime. He decided there would be a moon and stars for the evening, and there would be a sun for the day. He decided, verse 17, on, on all of the boundaries of the earth, which that's a difficult phrase. But in the rest of verse 17, he talks about the seasons. And so it could be, most likely, that these boundaries are the seasonal cycles that the earth goes through. This is all by his design. His authority can be seen everywhere you look. We humans have changed a lot of things, but no one is changing these things. And each one is an evidence of God's authority over creation. So in this this heavy situation, this writer has both questions and faith. He does not know when Israel's judgment will come to an end. And he finds hope in God's authority and power over creation. There is no way that the solution to what's going on is that God has been overpowered by his enemies. That cannot be the solution. The writer knows the history of how God has used his authority, used his power to save his people, and he can see the evidence of God's power and authority in the consistency of the world. Now, we've listened to the author's question, how long we've seen what happened. The temple is in disarray and defiled. We share his confidence in God's power and authority. But why should a God, why should such a God, respond to this writer's request and deliver Israel? Why should God answer this writer's prayer? Look at verse 2. The writer says, Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. You see there several times, the writer says, Remember your congregation. Remember Mount Zion. Later in verse 18, he says, remember how the enemy scoffs. And in verse 20, he'll say, have regard for or consider, God, your covenant. Now, why is the writer pointing all of these things out? And does it seem odd to you that he says to God, remember? When you pray, do you ask God to remember? What does that mean? Does the writer think that that God has forgotten all of these things? Does God need this writer and us to, on occasion, remind him of the things that he used to know? No. When the writer asks God to remember, he's asking God to act because of the thing that he's reminding him of. So remember how the enemy scoffs. He's saying, act because the enemy is scoffing. This writer is giving God persuasive reasons to act the way the writer has requested And so what reasons does the writer give to God? First reason, because saving his people would match God's commitments to them. God had brought Israel into a special relationship with himself. Verse 2, God had purchased Israel of old. Again in verse 2, he redeemed her to be the tribe of his heritage. God had rescued Israel in Egypt, drawing them out of slavery and made them his treasured possession around Mount Sinai. But not only this, at the end of verse two, God had lived among this people, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple of Jerusalem. And this special relationship is seen in how God or how the author talks about God's people. He calls God's people the sheep of his pasture in verse 2. He calls them God's dove in verse 19. These were his covenant people, the people to whom God had committed himself by his promises. And so in verse 20, the writer prays, Have regard for your covenant. You promised us blessing in the land, but for so long we have felt your anger and your judgment. And so the writer is arguing, Save your people. If you save your people, this will match the covenant commitments you have made. But there's a second persuasive reason that God should act for Israel. Second reason, because saving his people would glorify his name. You see, the attack against Israel was really an attack against God. Look at verse 23. He says, says, do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you. And so all throughout this psalm, again and again, we'll see the writer's concern for God's name, God's, God's reputation. In verse 7, he says, They set your sanctuary on fire. They profane the dwelling place of your name. Verse 10, How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Verse 18, Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs, how the foolish people reviles you or your name. Verse 22, arise O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all day long. Do you see, in the eyes of Israel's attackers, the defeat of God's people does not speak well of their God. The nations are not drawn to a God whose people have just been conquered. Rather, the condition of Israel indicates to her attackers that Israel's God is weak, or at best, that he just does not care enough about his people to rescue them or to protect them. God's enemies are making fun of him, the author says. Israel's suffering has been a disgrace for God in the eyes of her attackers. But as we saw from this writer's statement of faith in verses 12 to 17, despite Israel's situation, the writer does not share his attacker's low view of God. He knows that God is no less glorious than Israel's defeat, but it pains the writer to see people thinking less of God. And so the writer points to this disgrace for God's name as a second reason that God should act to save his people. Saving Israel by destroying her enemies would bring glory to God by restoring his reputation in the eyes of the nations. So the writer included these persuasive reasons in his prayer for deliverance for Israel. And this has gotten me thinking over the last week or so about using persuasive reasons in my own prayers. Have you ever thought about this? Abraham did this when he asked God to spare Sodom. He said, if, if there are at least 10 righteous people there, Abraham's persuasive reason came from God's character. He said, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right And God does not rebuke Abraham for this, but he also doesn't find ten righteous people in Sodom, and so the city is destroyed. Moses did this when he asked God to spare Israel after they believed the faithless report of the spies and suggested going back to Egypt. Moses' first persuasive reason was, God, if you kill these people, then the nations will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he killed them in the wilderness. And Moses' second persuasive reason was that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Again, God does not rebuke Moses for this. Rather, he pardons Israel as Moses requested. And so, of course, by including persuasive reasoning in our prayers, we're not saying that God is somehow missing important information that, we, that would change his mind or that God has, like, he has a conclusion, and, and, but he's really not thought this through. And we need to kind of give him better reasons to move him to our position. That's not what we're doing. We cannot force God to do anything, nor are we in a position to do so. God's knowledge and understanding are limitless and perfect. Now, a lot more could be said on this, and I think I actually want to come back to this someday and do more about this. But very briefly, I want to suggest a few benefits of adding some persuasive reasons to our prayers. I'm not saying that that we have to provide a persuasive reason for every request that we make. That should be theoretically possible, but such a practice is not modeled for us in the Scriptures. So first, why should we include persuasive reasons in our prayers? Number one, when we include persuasive reasoning in our prayers, we talk to God using a part of normal conversation. Using arguments in our conversation, reasons in our conversation, is just normal. And prayer is a conversation with God. Second, when we include persuasive reasoning in our prayers, we are prompted to meditate on God. To consider how our request matches his character. To consider how it fulfills one of his promises. Or to consider how our request might actually bring glory to God. And that kind of meditation is always good for us. Third, when we include persuasive reasoning in our prayers, that reasoning shapes our expectations of God's response. Have we we asked for something and then reminded God that he actually actually promised to do this? Then we can be confident God will do exactly what he said. Or have we asked God to do something and then described how we think it, it matches God's character or how we think it would glorify him? If so, then we need to acknowledge that Our understanding is limited. It is not complete. And so it's possible that that what he does will be different than what we asked. But we know that whatever he does, it will always match his character and be for his glory. And fourth, when we include persuasive reasoning in our prayers, we are reminded that our merit, our successes, our performance will never be a persuasive reason to ask God for anything. Persuasive reasoning in prayer is always about God, His character, His promises, and His glory. Now, as we finish today, I want to give us just a few more things to think about from Psalm 74. These are things that have been going through my mind the last few days, and I trust they'll be an encouragement to you and glorifying to our Savior. First, we don't need to know how long our suffering will last in order to trust God to the very end. Do you notice that by the end of the psalm, there was no response from God? In a lot of the psalms, we, we, we read this prayer, and at the end, the author talks about how God answered him. That does not come in Psalm 74. There's no answer. There's no deliverance. By the end of the psalm, the writer still does not know when the darkness will lift. This is not a a model for how to pray so that God will remove your suffering. It's a model for how to express both in prayer, both your faith in God and your questions for him in the midst of suffering. Now, of course, there are times in history where God did tell his people, hey, the suffering is going to last this long. And yet this is not normal in scriptures and certainly it is not something God reveals to his people today. Now, I'll admit, it can be helpful to know How long we need to hold on, right? You can imagine with me a runner who's who's just passed the three-hour mark in a marathon. And I did look at this this week. I'm not a marathon runner, but a three-hour time is like average. I'm sure I would not be that fast, but that's like average. So let's see that there's a marathon runner who's he's just passed the three-hour mark in his marathon. Imagine that in those three hours he has never looked at the tracking app on his phone, and now he's exhausted. He's ready to give up, and so he stops, thinking that he just, he just can't go one more step. And so finally, after those three hours, he pulls out his, his phone, looks at his tracking app, and he was only 50 feet from the finish line. Okay. And we think to ourselves, surely if he had only known how close he was, he, he could have held it out or, or gritted it out to the very end. Okay. And so in your life, you may be thinking, I could endure this really hard thing if I just knew how long it was going to last. Maybe maybe how long you're going to be sick or how long your spouse is going to be immature in some way or how long you're you're going to be single or how long you're going to struggle to pay this or that bill. But when we think like that, when we say, I could endure this if I just knew how long it was going to last, when we think that way, our endurance can be an indicator more of our own strength and resolve, and grit. Our own ability to to gut it out rather than an indicator of our dependence upon God. God knows our suffering from beginning to end, and so we don't need to know how long our suffering will last. We can trust Him, whether that suffering continues for another two weeks or for the rest of our lives. We know that He who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us into his presence. Number 2. In response to God's mysterious actions, a heart full of faith can also be full of questions. Psalms like this, and there are many of them in the Psalter, psalms like this remind us that life includes both joys and sorrows. Very often in a in a mixture with proportions that we cannot understand. It's a reminder of our limitations. But just as, just as God did not rebuke this psalmist or others for the questions that accompany their faith, he does not rebuke us. God welcomes the questions of those who are depending upon him. And in a crowd even of this size, every week, there are sure to be people coming whose faith is full of questions. The church is not the place to hide the fact that we have questions. This is the place where we we carry our questions together to God and we receive the hope of his answer in the gospel of Jesus Christ through the preaching of his word, through our songs, the Lord's Supper, and so on. Third, God cares so much about the glory of his name that he willingly suffers temporary disgrace to deal with sin. Let me say that one more time. God cares so much About the glory of his name, that he willingly suffers temporary disgrace to deal with sin. It pains the writer of this psalm to hear Israel's attackers mocking Israel's God in the aftermath of their victory. You see, in order to to deal with Israel's sin, God had acted against Israel in ways that made the nations think less of him. The sacred space where Israel worshiped had been defiled. But God would not allow his covenant people to confuse the nations about his glory any longer. By Israel's unfaithfulness, by her idolatry, by her disobedience, they had taught the nations that their God was like every other God. But God cares so much about the glory of his name that he willingly suffered the temporary disgrace in the eyes of Israel's attackers in order to deal with Israel's sin. But even this would not be the greatest disgrace that God was willing to suffer for the sake of his name. Years later, the eternal Son of God would would empty himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, the eternal Son of God humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But in this this ultimate disgrace, he was pierced for, for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities that sinners like you and me might be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to God. God cares so much about the glory of His name that the eternal Son of God willingly suffered the temporary disgrace of the cross to deal with sin. But God cares so much about the glory of His name that He will not finally settle for anything less than all people in all places confessing his glory. Indeed, this this passion for God's glory is what drove Jesus to face the hour of his death on the cross, saying, as we read today, Father, glorify your name. He endured the cross, Hebrews says, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And in Christ's resurrection, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God cares so much about the glory of his name that he will not finally settle for anything less than all people in all places glorifying him. And lastly, the people who know God's glory Share his concern for the glory of his name. Along with the writer's statement of, of what he knows of, of the, the glory of God, his, his awesome character and work, we also hear the writer's many expressions of, of concern that, that God is not being glorified. God's character and work is not known and recognized as it should be. You see, those who, those who know his glory want him to be glorified a person who has, who has tasted of the glory of God, who has truly experienced the blessings of belonging to him, such a person cannot stand to see God not glorified. The people who know him will, will take seriously God's command to do all to the glory of God, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. But this command also reminds us that it is possible to eat or to drink or to do anything else we do it is possible to do all those things not for the glory of God. It's possible to think that we can find greater joy apart from God. And so we may need to repent this morning of how we have not glorified Him, how we have preferred other things above Him. And so as we close today, my prayer for us is that we would be like this psalmist. And more importantly, we would be like our Savior. That we would be a people who know the glory of God and are concerned in all of life's circumstances, joyful or deeply saddening, be a people who are concerned to see him glorified as he deserves in our hearts, among us here as a church, and also around the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our time today in your word in Psalm 74. Lord, as we consider what we know of your character and your work, We praise you for your glory. And as sinners, we are thankful that that you are glorified in saving those who were against you. We thank you for the testimony of this psalm to your power and to your authority. and We rejoice in your readiness to use that power and that authority for the sake of your people. And so it is with great confidence that we face what is before each of us today. We know that you are always able to do for us everything you have promised, no matter how dark our circumstances may be. This psalm has also led us to think of the many ways you are not glorified in our world today, whether whether that is in our own hearts or in the ideas that that dominate our culture or in the the false worship of so many religions. This, This grieves us, and so we remind you of of your promise to forgive our sins through Christ. We ask that you would forgive us for any way that we have preferred something above you. And we long for the day, we look forward to the day when when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that day when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.